The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. This show is being presented in the middle of Advent, the season of anticipation for traditional Christians as they await the arrival of the baby Jesus symbolizing the rebirth of hope in the world. Other Christians these days are anticipating the return of an adult Jesus to save us from our own self-destruction, the Jesus of Revelation rather than the Jesus of the Gospels. But some of us, both Christians and non-Christians, believe the light embodied in Jesus never actually left the planet and present in, in what some call the Holy Spirit and is working through those who offer themselves for service as channels for the miraculous and as healing agent extensions for the divine. Our guest today, Lisa Anderson, has discovered how to be one of those channels, and she proves that you don't need to be a saint to play a part in God's plan. All you have to do is focus on opening your heart to the I am and recognize how natural it is to let God's love for us work through you in order to bring a bit of heaven to earth. Lisa, welcome to NDE Radio. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm a saint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. In that case. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, traditionally, you know, all Christians called themselves saints. We always, we, we always uh, had a heap, heaping lot of ego to go along with our Christianity. Uh, Lisa, you've had uh, many spiritually transformative experiences in your life and, and have shared the light uh, the light's STE power with others as well. So I'm hoping you can make this show a kind of advent calendar with some of the several doors you've opened on stories of how God has worked through you. Um, when did you first realize God was using you to help bring a taste of heaven to earth? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, oh, gosh, Lee, you know, I feel as though I've always had a, a, a strong connection with God. I've as a child, I'd always go for walks and speak out loud and talk to God directly and felt each night, you know, I lay down to go to bed and just felt very close to God. As far as being used, really, that's some, that's kind of a realization that sort of landed on me in the last uh, 10, 12 years. And there was a lot of significant life events that occurred that sent me into a path of deeply uh, and truly, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word radically relying on that direction um, in the face of a lot of really impossible circumstances. So as I've chosen to sort of lay a little bit low in my life and, and reflect on some of these experiences, um, I realize that, yeah, we re- I really am or we really are, if we're open and willing, are can be tools to beautiful experiences that unfold. And I've also recognized that these are experiences that don't unfold for my own benefit. These are experiences that seem to unfold for the benefit for all of those involved. It's not Mm. something that's a tool that I use for myself in any way. So probably in the last 10 or so years. Okay. Well, a lot of them seem to involve going places. There are highway stories. Uh, You've told me three or four of them. Um, maybe we could start with the, with the Harley driver. Okay. We sure could. 
We sure could. <laughs> okay. Um, so I've shared this with you before, and it's I'm I'm grateful to have a chance to share it with you now to a wider audience because it's something that has changed the way I look at life profoundly. Um, my family, we, we live in Montana, and my father had for the first time ever. Uh, rented a little property that we could all visit for three times in a summer. And it was up north in a place that we had not been or spent any time uh, near Flathead Lake. Um, the little little town of Big Fork, Montana is there. And this is about 15 years ago. We were driving north and it's an absolutely spectacular area. Glacier National Park is up there and you drive along the Mission Mountains. And this time of year was right around the 4th of July holiday. And the sun that day was just spectacular. The light was golden and streaming in through the tall evergreen trees. It was just one of those beautiful bluebird sky, emerald green, golden lit days. And as we were driving on a little cutoff road that took us from one highway to another toward, uh, toward Big Fork, in fact, near Ferndale, we were found ourselves basically alone on a stretch of road. My parents were in the vehicle ahead of us. My husband and I were in the vehicle behind them with four, four small children. Um, and as we were driving, uh, there was a gentleman on a Harley Davidson approaching us. Nothing unusual about that. But as soon as we could see this man, and, and I was driving, as soon as we could see this man, um, a deer immediately, a doe, stepped right in front of his motorcycle. and he impacted that deer point blank. There was, there was no time to even see the deer. She, he struck her immediately. Uh, the deer was instantly destroyed. The motorcycle was immediately thrown head over and over end down the highway. It was skidding on the road and breaking into pieces in front of us. And this man was thrown a great distance at what I would consider to be highway speeds. We were traveling at 55 miles an hour, and I assume he was too. He tumbled a great distance down the road, passed my mother and father's vehicle, and landed in an incredibly awkward, very distressing hovel on the ground next to us. We, we pulled over immediately. Uh, my husband and my father leaped out of the cars and ran over to him. And while they were attending to this man, uh, it occurred to me that my children, who were, I had my two kids and my niece and nephew in the car, they were watching the scene, and I realized I needed to distract them. It was hard to see. It was a very graphic scene. And uh, so I put a little movie on for them. And after I got them to where they would pay a little more attention to this movie and a little less attention to this the scene outside of their windows, um. I turned in my seat, Lee, and I have to be honest, I was really undone. I was entirely rattled by what I had just witnessed. My hands were shaking and I was trying to get, I had, I felt like I couldn't breathe deeply and my stomach felt like it was turning. And I started just trying to breathe and relax and settle myself down a little. Um, and I could see all of a sudden I noticed in the car ahead of me, I noticed that my mother's head tipped. And immediately I realized, oh my gosh, mom's praying. I should pray. I, I could, that's what I could do. I could pray. And as I was sitting there trying to calm myself, I realized I, I didn't think I could be much help in this instance. I 
had intentionally not taken CPR in high school and was mentally beating myself up about that at this moment. But after having spent some time with this gentleman on the road, my husband and my father divided up and got on either side of this incident and began directing traffic. And I began to pray. And all I could think to do was recite a prayer that I knew, the Lord's Prayer, something to help me breathe a little more deeply. Um, But I recall very clearly thinking to myself as I began to settle down a little bit and remembering the words, saying them audibly in the car. I remember saying, I know there's not much I can do to help here. And I know for sure I'm not going to approach this this man. Um, I don't have it in me to approach him. But Father, if there's anything that I can do, I'll surrender. I'll do it, you know. But I just kept I praying, and, and no sooner than I said that, I look over, and in the midst of this incident, right all along this highway, there's a dirt road that enters the highway perpendicular to the road, and there's a vehicle, a truck, a relatively large truck, and I can see that the driver of this truck does not see the man laying in the road. The driver of this truck sees this deer that is laying in the highway 20 or so yards up, 30 yards up, and this motorcycle that's just in pieces. And I see them rolling to his right into his lane, looking like, what, what is this? And I run across the road. I just don't even think about it. I hop out of the car and run across the road knowing that he would eventually see this man, but not wanting him to cut too closely and help direct this, this vehicle around this man. Now, I can tell you that this man was laying in a position that was so distressing. His head and his arms were folded entirely under his body. And I had watched him in slow motion when he struck that deer, not only fly from the bike, which tumbled, but watched him tumble himself down. And he landed in this position that appeared to be badly broken. But I couldn't, I couldn't look at him. I was just, you know, again, it was just too much for me to handle. And I recall after I directed this vehicle around, I just looked up and just said, okay, God, you know, what next? And just then, Lee, it felt as though someone had pushed in on the backs of my knees because I just fell to the ground. And I found myself sitting immediately next to this man. And all I could see, I could see his ear. And I thought immediately, okay, if there's something you want me to say to him, I'll say it. And I leaned over, I placed my hands on each side of him, and I just I put my mouth right up to his ear, right up to his ear. And I just took a deep breath and thought, Father, you talk. And the words that came were so surprising to me. There was a, there was a tenderness in them that I would not have necessarily thought to have in that moment. <clears throat> but the words that came forward were, sweetheart, I'm here with you and you're doing just great. And I'm here with you. And you are held in love. You are held in in God's love. And nothing can separate you from that love. No incident, no accident, no collision. Nothing can separate you from this love. You are whole and you are perfect. 
and you are untouched and I'm here with you and you're doing just great. And just then my father who sees me speaking to this man comes running up and says, is he speaking to you? And smiling at my dad, I just, I try to reassure him. You know, I just, I, I, I shake my head. No, he's not speaking to me, but I smile and say, but he's doing just great dad. And he goes, huh? <laughs> and he turns and he runs to the other end and they're still directing traffic. I keep speaking to him these same words. You were held in love and you were whole and perfect and untouched. And I'm right here with you and you're doing just great. Well, after several minutes, I, I look down and at the end of the highway, I can see little flashes of red, blue, red, blue coming and I can tell there's a fire truck on its way. Um, and behind that fire truck was an ambulance. And I'm thinking, oh, good. I mean, it's taken a minute. These are volunteers. And it's, they usually travel a distance to get to the volunteer fire department and then get to the scene. But as I'm standing or sitting with him again, my mouth is right at his ear. And I'm speaking to him. I hear him go, oh. And he exhales. And I jump. I mean, I just hadn't heard a thing, you know, and it, it startled me. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, Hi, you know, and I, I, I go to try to speak to him and the fire truck is right there. And it's so loud. <laughs> I mean, he came cruising up so fast. I was a little concerned he was even going to stop. But as soon as the firemen and the, the ambulance drivers arrived, there were three men total. They just they just asked us to leave. They, my father was trying to explain to them what happened. And they're just like, well, no, we just need you to get in your cars and we need you to just go. <laughs> and we're like, well, we, but, and, you know, I mean, there's so much I wanted to tell them, but they were like, look, you're, you're kind of a liability. Go, just keep going. So we all pile back into our vehicles and we're all just stunned. And my husband's driving now. I'm in the passenger seat. And as he's driving away, I look back and this man sits up. And the EMT has one of those lights and he's looking in his eyes. And I look at Tim and I said, he's Tim. He's sitting up. And we were just stunned. And now I like to tell people that that's not the miracle. Because what about what's about to happen for us is so surprising for me. And this is the piece that really um, has shaped my thoughts since this. But we, we left and we drove toward Big Fork and drove into an area that was near the lake, a resort. And uh, we tried to find this rental property that my father had rented. And we proceeded to get lost. Um, we drove, <laughs> there's people everywhere. There's people pulling boats. There's folks on the sidewalks. It's a big residential area. We're driving, driving in circles. <laughs> I can see my dad with the map, you know, upside down. And finally, my mom is just like, Lee, you know, pull over. So he, he pulls over on the wrong side of the, the residential street and there's people everywhere. Hops out with his map and he's going to ask the next person that walks by for directions. And it's a man. And Tim and I hop out thinking, well, maybe we'll, uh, Maybe we'll listen in on this, <laughs> help dad find this place, you know. And this man gives us directions. Oh, it's very simple. He points it out. But as we're standing there, Lee, and after this man finishes giving us instructions, I feel this 
overwhelming urge welling up in me. I mean, just this incredible urge. And I, I can't resist. I, I am absolutely being inclined to tell this man what just happened. My dad gives me a look like, oh gosh, really? You know, not now. But... And uh, I start to tell this man the story. You know, we're driving down the road. We saw a gentleman on Harley Davidson. This man really didn't have a helmet. He flew off this bike. He hit a deer, you know, and I start to tell him this. And this man puts up his hand and silences me. And I, I stop and he just, instead of walking along the sidewalk, he turns and walks straight into a building that we happen to be parked in front of. And we're all just kind of kicking the dirt, like, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know what this is about. And he comes back out with a woman under his arm and he goes, tell her what you just told me. And he steps away and I, I tell this woman about the motorcycle and this man and where we were. And she goes, that's my husband. And she turns around and she runs back into this building. And my father and my husband and I are like, "Uh, what? So we leave and we drive right to this apartment, this little, this little property. And and we enjoyed a lovely weekend. Um, But several weeks later, it was the second of the three times that we were renting these little summer property. Um, I told my mom, I said, mom, we're here again. And I can't get this gentleman out of my mind. I checked the police reports. There was nothing. And uh, I'm wondering, would you, I'm too shy. Would you be willing to call that building and see if there's anyone there that knows what, what happened? She's like, Oh yeah, sure. So she grabs a phone and she uh, puts me on speaker and she calls, she's like, hey, um, so, you know, explains, we, we witnessed an incident and I don't know, is there anyone there that knows anything about this? We're just trying to know how this fellow was. And this gal who answers the phone goes, oh, oh yeah, hold on. His wife is here. She works here. Uh, let me just ask her. So she puts us on hold and leaves, comes back after a little bit and says, well, I just talked to her. And she said, after you told her the story, she tried to call her husband, but he didn't answer his phone and not really knowing where to go. She just ran home first and she found her husband at home. And she said, what are you doing here? I heard, weren't you just in an accident? And this man says, well, yeah, oh yeah, (laughs) I was. And she said, well, why aren't you at the hospital? And he says, well, I'm fine. You're fine. What do you mean you're fine? get in the car and she throws him in the car and drives him straight to the ER and they're at the ER and the gal says, you know, they check him for a concussion. Cause you know, he wasn't wearing a helmet. He doesn't have a concussion. And she said, you know, they check him for broken bones and, you know, internal bleeding and all that. And, you know, she checked him for everything. They ran all kinds of tests on him. nothing. He was, there was nothing wrong with him. She said, but the funniest thing about him, is that or about it is that he 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 didn't have anything on his head or his forearms and his knuckles his hands he didn't have a scratch on him she goes he was completely untouched mm-hmm. and i remember that crystal clear i mean lee it all happened in slow motion the man was um he was a bald man and he was riding this harley he had an american flag tied around his head and 
he had a white men's like a t-shirt and a red flannel shirt un- unbuttoned and rolled at the arms and he had on denim jeans and boots and uh he didn't have anything that would keep him from being scraped and, and we watched him he hit the ground several times mm-hmm. he rolled quite a bit well as a former emt <laughs> i wish i'd thought to uh bring those words of encouragement to some of the people we scraped up off the highway who just demolished themselves, especially those not wearing helmets when they were motorcycling. Yeah. Now there's another story. That- but I want to, I want to, before we, before we hop over, can I share something about that? Of Last course. Um, there's two things I want to share with you about that. Um, and this is the part that's kind of changed my thoughts about all of it. Uh, first and foremost, I wish they were my words, but I don't think they were. Um, what I felt when I just turned and was like, okay, God, what next? But do not make me approach this body. I'm as close as I can get. Um, I, I, and I collapsed and, and was near him. I felt what felt like sun on me. Now, we were in the shade. The trees are tall on either side of the road. But what came over or through me felt like, like a ray of love. I felt as though those words were coming through me and it was so uplifting to feel that it was such a loving warmth that I could feel. Also, I can share with you that for some reason, it never occurred to me that this man may have passed, but both my husband and my father approached me individually separately after this incident and told me they were each quite sure that he was not alive. But it had never occurred to me that he wasn't alive, and it and he may have just been unconscious. But honestly, it just never occurred to me. I, it just never occurred to me that he was not alive. But finally, Lee, when I think about the number of turns we took when we left that incident, and how we arrived in front of a building where his wife was, and we approached of all the people that were walking on the sidewalk that could have given us directions or how many times we could have stopped prior to that. We approached the one man that knew this woman. Um, and I thought to my, I thought about this over and over. I thought it'd be one thing if we encountered this woman and she ran home in the nick of time and found him unconscious and got him to the ER and saved his life or or it'd be another thing if we, we told her about this and she made it to the ER in time to say goodbye to him before he passed. You know, I mean, all of that would somehow make sense to me, but, but he was fine. And in asking, like, what was the point in finding her if he was really ultimately untouched? It was so that we would know what happened. And so we could share the outcome of this story. And honestly, it's the kind of thing that has impacted how I look at life for this interesting reason. My eyes were a witness to what appeared to be a very violent incident and a very broken human form. And my thoughts, you know, my body was shaking. I was having reactions to what I was seeing on the road. But there was a truth in the words that were shared. There was a truth. And that truth was that there was 
nothing that can separate this man from the love that he is held in. That he is held in this love. We are, we are all held in this love. And that a, a collision and an accident, an incident can't separate us from that love. I mean, that is, that is true. And even though our senses will be the judge and jury and testify that what is happening right in front of our eyes is just exactly as we see it and we think it. There's something that came forward in that experience that was more absolute and more true and more real than my own perception. Hmm. And that's the piece that I've, I've allowed to stay within me as you know, other life experiences have unfolded. There's another story you told me about the, that uh, brings out the power of the Lord's Prayer. It's another highway story. I don't know if you want, want to tell us that or if you have something else in mind. Yeah, I'll tell you that story. And if we have time, maybe I'll, I'll tell you the story about my dad. And there is a, a story he shared with me about a butterfly. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a similar thing. And um, I'm trying to put this into context as far as time. Yeah. So it was many years after that initial incident. I was, I, we work um, at a ski resort and it's a, <laughs> it's on a beautiful river. In fact, the movie, the river runs through, it was filmed on this gorgeous river, but the highway is dangerous and it's highly trafficked. It has very narrow roads and some of the locals refer to this um, highway or this stretch of highway as Death Canyon, um, <laughs> lovingly. <laughs> um, but it was actually a, a summer day, and I was driving up the, the the road as I did. We we lived an hour from the resort, so most every day of the year I would drive that road. And um, this day, I was just cruising along, and the idea very very. Uh, prominent idea came to me. I was listening to music, driving up the road. And this idea came, say the Lord's prayer. And I thought, all right, <laughs> I just kind of rattle it off. Our father, and uh, when I'm finished, I reach over, turn up the radio a little more. And I'm, I keep driving and I hear much more firm and almost seemingly audibly again. And uh, I think, Oh, okay. Um, sure. And I, I slow down and I say the Lord's prayer one more time. And when I finish for another time, a second time, I hear the word again. And I go, okay, I know, I know better. I can't deny what I'm hearing. So I shut off the radio and I began to contemplate the words, our father. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And each time I would finish the prayer, I would begin again very deeply contemplating each word, our Father, our Father, which art in heaven, right here, hallowed be thy name. And as I'm driving, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a road that people travel up to 70 miles an hour on, and I come around a very tight turn, and the traffic lee has stopped in the road. I come around the corner and there is a car literally 
on this blind turn. And I hit the brakes with everything I've got. And I immediately look in my rearview mirror and there's a semi behind me trying to slow and it's truck trailer is wobbling back and forth. It's jamming on its brakes so slow, so rapidly it's going boom, 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 boom. And I just, I literally goosed the, the gas and pulled next to the vehicle in front of me. So the concrete barrier between me and the river was to my right and the, the vehicle in front of me was to my left and the semi stops. Now the semi stopped in time. It wouldn't have hit me. There was room, but <laughs> it was coming in hot. And I stopped for a minute and I look forward and not, not far up the road, just right there. I can see the tips of flames and black, black smoke billowing up into the sky. And as I'm looking at this and, you know, my heart is pounding, this is vehicle behind me. And there's just, I'm thinking there's gotta be cars stacking up behind this. Uh, this man is running from car to car and I rolled down my window and he says, it's a head on collision, uh, passenger car, semi truck trailer, uh, appears to be fused together. They're burning. I said, are there people in the car? I said, is anyone there helping the people? He says, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I saw. And he's running. He's like, it's going to be a while. He says, and he runs to the next vehicle. And I just thought, okay, <laughs> again, father, which way? What do you want me to do? Well, it's clear that there's no cell service in this canyon. And so immediately the idea is to turn around and go back and find a phone. So I do, I back up next to the semi and I do a kind of a five or six point turn and get between the two vehicles and turn around. And I find a whitewater rafting company that is just filled with people about to go out rafting. And they have this junky little phone behind the counter and they let me call, I call 911. And I get the uh, 911 responder, it's a woman. And I tell her what I see, what I saw. And she says, ma'am, I appreciate your call, but we know about this. It's actually been reported already. There's a semi-truck in the canyon. Their brakes have overheated and they're smoking. We already know about it. It's under control. I say, ma'am, forgive me, but that is not what's happening. I saw the flames. The smoke is like black tire or diesel smoke. I'm telling you, three different times, Lee, she would say, no, I'm sorry. We already know about this. I'm not going to send a respondent. I'm not going to send the police. I'm not. We know about this. And again, I was like, okay, wait, I'm running into obstacles. So it's not about me. Deep breath. What do I say? You know, and the idea immediately comes, instantly comes to tell her as I see the road outside of the the company, ma'am, in the entire time that we have been speaking, not a single vehicle has left the canyon. Now, this is the road that you drive from the airport to West Yellowstone, they get 5 million visitors a year. It's always very busy. And she says, I understand. I'll send the responders right now. And she did. I went home and I went and got the newspaper in the morning because I wanted to see if there was any reports about what happened in the canyon yesterday. And I grabbed the newspaper and uh, on my way to try to find the police reports, I opened it up and on the front cover is an article. And there's this young man standing there, tall Wranglers t-shirt. And my, I think he had like either a John Deere shirt or a John Deere cap on his head, something like that. And he's standing next to this big pile. And the reporter says something along the lines of, it's a miracle. So this young driver is standing before the ashen remains, the burned remains of a semi-truck trailer. The whole thing burned to the ground. 
He said there was an area in the canyon where a passenger car, I think, attempted to pass somebody and hit this semi-truck trailer at full speed, front on. The two vehicles fused, both vehicles burned, burned to the ground. And if I call, recall correctly, I believe there were actually four people in that vehicle. And the article went on to say that it's a miracle because all of them are uninjured. All of the people involved were uninjured. Wow. Now, you know, I can't certainly speak to, you know, does, does God need us to recite a prayer? What was the purpose of that? Um, was there any thing in praying that was helpful? I, I can't speak to any of that. I know that I was protected for sure. I'm grateful that I was able to avoid colliding with the park, the, the stopped vehicles. And I was grateful that I was able to get through to the responders who were the first on the scene. Um, but I've learned to really entirely rely when I hear, I get nudges all the time. I I respond now. In fact, that's how I met you. I respond to a series (laughs) of nudges that took me way off course. And, uh, and And I'll do this. I'll radically rely on these because I know that on some level, there's something greater than me going on. And there's a truth in the, in the nudge or in the word that you hear. And in just dedicating myself in a moment, if you know, I start each day just simply saying, okay, I'm yours and I'll do what I'm going to do today and I'll stay as present as I can. But if there's something you need me to do, I know I'll know. I'll listen. Hmm. And the stories that unfold are really remarkably. I mean, there's so, so many. And some of them involve the tiniest of little creatures and some of them involve intensely mind-blowing experiences, financial challenges. and But hmm. anyhow. Okay. <laughs> There's a story you want to tell about your father. So why don't you do that? <laughs> okay. Well, this is kind of fun. I get to sit here and tell you all these stories. <laughs> Feel free to ask me questions if you have any, because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot, but um, you know, the story, my dad, my dad was an amazing soul and, um, yeah, he's an amazing soul. Uh, really beautiful, beautiful man. Probably, probably the most loving human I have ever known. Just naturally very, very loving. In fact, um, he owned with his partners, a, a large resort project. Um, he was not a wealthy man. In fact, we, I was raised on a, a ranch. He was a uh, a, a hired hand. He helped with irrigating and moving cattle. You know, we, we were raised in the West when the West was still pretty, pretty rough, pretty Western and beautiful. But uh, he had some very wonderful ideas and he wound up being the steward, if you were, for a very large block of land that abutted a ski resort. And their mission was to protect a great sum of this land for animal and wildlife corridors. He was also going to do that by raising funds, by developing the area that was already attached to the ski and resort ski area and the resort area. But then that sum would allow him to protect the greatest amount of land. 
but he was very attached to this land. And he shared a story with me decades before he would ever be, decades before he would ever be involved in this project. He used to bow hunt. He, in fact, he was an archer. He was a remarkable archer. And he would hunt back in this area. And he told me one day, he said, he said, years ago, I mean, decades ago, he told me, he said, I was up in the mountains, Lise. And he said, it was one of those absolutely glorious days. The, the sky was as blue, bluebird blue as it could be. And the sun was out and the clouds were crisp and white. And they were just kind of kicking through the sky with a breeze. And he entered an area, he kind of broke out of the timber into an area that was like a, a big meadow. He said it was just spectacular. There was a stream in the meadow. It was a gentle breeze. It was warm. He said it's the kind of day you could smell the earth. It's beautiful. And uh, he sat down and was kind of splashing water on his face. And he put his pack down on the ground and was just taking in how absolutely perfect this day was. And my father is very much a man's man. He's not a religious man. But as he was sitting there, he said, <laughs> he's taking it all in, just, ah, oh, wow, what a day. And he looks down at the creek, at the stream, and there's this little white butterfly. You see him a lot. There's tiny little white butterflies that cruise all through the meadows. And he sees one, and it's sitting right in front of him. It's flying. He said, but the whole lower quadrant of its wing is torn and hanging by a thread. So as it's flying, it's trying to fly, and it's struggling terribly but this lower quadrant is just hanging there. And he's watching this butterfly struggle going, wait a minute. <laughs> I am experiencing like this most heavenly moment here. This is the most beautiful scene. Why is this little butterfly struggling? You know, how can this be? And he said, he sat there and he said, the idea came to him immediately that, well, the only place this butterfly is struggling he looks around and he's the only one there is in his consciousness. And he stopped and he went, well, huh. And he closed his eyes and he said, I see you as perfect. I see you as whole. And he opens his eyes and he said, right in front of him, he jumped all the way back onto his hands. He just went, ah! and he, he stopped. He's looking at this thing and he gets really close to it. And it's completely perfect. I mean, its wings are just totally whole. And he gets closer and he's studying it. Like, how is this even possible? And soon enough, it flies away. No struggle at all. And I remember asking him, because I was pretty young when he told me the story. And I said, Dad, do you think you fixed that broken butterfly? And he said, no. He said, that butterfly was always perfect. It just took me a minute to realize it. Wow. That's amazing. It is amazing. And it's interesting, too, because he's, you know, he's such a man's man. You know, he's, he's a cowboy on a ranch, and he hunts with a recurved bow, which is the hardest kind of bow to hunt with. And mm -hmm. he was a remarkable archer. And we lived off of the, the meat that he would obtain with that's that was the meat that we 
we ate growing up. And for him to have that experience, he's not a religious man. He couldn't quote the Bible at all, but he told everyone that he knew God was real and he loved God. In fact, this is something I find so fascinating about him. When he had this company, I will never forget, we had this ski resort and um, he was a kind of fellowly that would stand in front of these teams of people, young people, a lot of young people. It'd be a new orientation day. And there might be 350 or so new employees. And he would say, first of all, I want you to call me by my first name. Second of all, here's my cell phone. And if you ever need to talk, call me. Finally, I'm very proud that you're working with me and I'm very proud to be working with you. But I want you all to know that I'm grateful and I love you. <laughs> and he was the kind of person, I mean, people were just like, <laughs> I'm in, you know, <laughs> I mean, everyone just loved this guy. He was so wonderfully generous and he had that kind of spirit. So it doesn't surprise me that he would come across a situation with a tiny little creature, like a butterfly. But interestingly, it's not all that different from the scene on the road with the man on the Harley. Hmm. There's a similarity there. Lisa, we have a little more than 15 minutes left. And I'm wondering, to put you back on on the road again, you were walking a lot through San Francisco. First to find an apartment and then to help a man in the hospital. I told you that story. Um, yeah, you know, I can tell you that story. So, you know, I, I've lived from the standpoint of being quite willing to do what I'm led to do. And after, after um, graduating from college, I had a series of wonderful openings just all in a week. Um, I had a business degree, but my father at owned art galleries. And he said, look, kid, if you're going to be an artist, you got to learn how to sell, sell it first. So I got this business degree, but I always had wanted to study art. And I called the art school in San Francisco, the Academy of Art College. And they're like, oh, admissions are closed. They've been closed for a long time, but send us your portfolio anyway. I had no place to stay in the city. But that very week, some friends of mine came into the restaurant where I worked as a waitress and said, gosh, if you ever think about coming to San Francisco, you can stay with us. And in that same week, a movie production company came to Montana and they needed to rent little condominiums and apartments fully furnished. And I owned one. I bought a little property in college. I worked two jobs all through school and had enough money to put down on the the property I'd been renting. And it was fully furnished. and. They paid me, Lee, (laughs) weekly what most apartments rent for each month in Bozeman, but it was because of its location and the fact that it was furnished. So all of a sudden I had the income to go and I got accepted into this art school. And I told these sweet people who had invited me to stay with them, I'll stay with you, but I'm going to go into the city and I'm going to walk around through the most beautiful, high-end, lovely neighborhoods. You know, I'm broke as a mouse, but I'm just going to trust that there'll be an apartment there that's not in the paper that I can afford something that has, you know, a view of the bay and parking. And I wanted a washer and dryer. I mean, I had all of these ideas 
And they would just go, oh, that's, you know, that's really sweet. Let us know if it ever happens, you know, how nice for you. Well, after having walked through Pacific Heights and Cow Hollow and Union Street, I found myself at Coit Tower and I was walking along a road, Alta Street, looking at all the beautiful, beautiful properties. And this lovely couple approaches me and says, are you looking for a rental? And I said, why, yes, I am. And they said, you know, we know of one that they haven't raised the rent for seven years. And I said, really? And they said it has a view of the bay, mostly because the home across the street from it had slipped from its foundation in the heavy rains the year before, and it had to be taken down. And now it has this beautiful view. And they said it had parking, but they said, um, I know we know the owners of the building and they've lived their whole, their whole lives. Their families uh, were immigrants. I believe they may have been Italian or Sicilian. I'm not sure. Um, but they've lived in this house. It's a family house forever. And there's a man who lives in the home. His name is Joe. And he lives upstairs. And when his mother passed, the family didn't have it in them to sell the house. And Joe lives there alone. But they would like to rent the studio apartment below it. It was a one-bedroom apartment below it. Um, to someone who might be understanding. Joe's a very loving person, He's, but he has some uh, mental disabilities that cause him to be maybe more friendly than people might expect. And they just want to have somebody that would care or be caring towards him. So I, I got the apartment. The, the, his brother, Vince, rented me the apartment. And I worked two job, jobs and went to art school, and it was just magic. I mean, that city was just magic. But I had been approached by my father after two years to come back and work for him. And within just two weeks of departing from the city after being there for nearly two years, I had been um, in my apartment uh, getting ready for work. And again, this idea, go find Joe, comes to me. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'll find Joe. I have to finish making my bed and I'll grab my stuff and I'll head to work in a minute. And it was just like, no, go find Joe. <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. I'm going to finish making my bed <laughs> and I'm going to go. To, and then it was like, go find Joe. And I just stopped and went, oh, geez. Okay. I start looking around and I go outside and I find him and he is having, apparently he's having a massive stroke and he can barely speak and he's trying to sit up and and uh, I run to my neighbors, the folks who would help me find the apartment originally. And they came out. Uh, um, she stayed and made a call to the ambulance. And, and, and Peck came out, and we were with Joe. I had to leave as the ambulance was coming, and I went to work. I worked as a waitress down on the park, um, uh, just below Little Italy there. Anyway, um, but I got off work very late at night. And when I got home, I, I couldn't stop thinking about him. I, did, I just didn't know what happened. But I knew what hospital they had called, the ambulance. So I looked it up in the phone book back in the days where there were phone books <laughs> and uh, found the address for I think the hospital might have been like St. Vincent's or something. And I might have that wrong. But I walked in the night through the city. And I took a Bible and just some spiritual texts, things that I thought might be helpful. And I just walked. And eventually got there. It took a while. And um, I walked through the front door. I bet at this time it's probably closer to maybe one in the morning. 
And I walk up into the hospital and there's no one at the front desk. You know, they're either doing rounds or just don't take people at the front desk at one in the morning. And I'm looking around and I notice there's these two big gray doors to my left. So they're dark behind it, but I push to these doors and I'm looking going, hello, you know, like is somebody here. And uh, I see a light and it's, it's, I walk down and it turns out it's the ICU and I know I'm not supposed to be there. And I'm like, but there's Joe in the corner. And as I walk into this ICU, I look to my left and there's an elderly gentleman in bed and, and he's, he's sitting up and he's breathing, but he appears to be very strained. He's very, very elderly. And next to him was a younger man, um, maybe Filipino. He had long hair, but he was entirely nude and he was covered in burns. And there was another fellow to the right, older, but not terribly elderly, all asleep and Joe. So I sit down with Joe and I just start reading to him. I just kind of open the text and just start reading. And, and, and some of this is not audible. Some of it is, but I'm trying to be mindful because I know if I get caught, I'm going to get in trouble, (laughs) but I wind up being there for about an hour or so. And then this just became clear to me, it's time to go. And I grabbed my things and walked out undetected and went home. Now, before work in the morning, again, I knew where the hospital was. So I just got up, threw on my things and walked across the city again, went back to the hospital. I walk in, nobody's at the front desk. So I'm like, I know where I'm going. I punch through the doors and I start heading for the ICU. And when I get to the ICU, I can see that Joe's not there, but there's a nurse there. And she's like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Come on, let's go. And, and I said, um, I actually am here to see Joe. He was here last night, but do you, and she goes, Oh, Joe. Yeah. Oh, Joe, just a minute. His family's here. Let me take you to his room. And I walk in his room and his brother Vince and his sister, Jill and his family members are there and they go, Lisa. Oh my gosh. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Our Joey's alive. Our Joey's alive. Come see him. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I know he's alive. He's, and I can hear Joe. He's like, Hey Lisa. And I'm like, hi Joe. And Joe keeps trying to get me to come over and talk to him. And I go over and talk to him a little. He says, would you tell them um, I'm very thirsty? I said, okay, I'll get a nurse for you, Joe. And Vince goes, is he talking to you? Do you understand him? I go, you don't understand him? I said, he's thirsty. And the nurse comes over and is swabbing his tongue with a cotton ball and dipped in water, you know. And Vince starts to tell me, he goes, we don't know what happened, but it's a miracle. See, last night, the doctors told us that uh, Joe wouldn't live through the night. And the, we called his priest and the, he came and read him his last rites. And we were expecting him to perish. And we all came in the morning to believing that would be the news. But he's doing great. And he was doing great. He had some health issues that they took care of in the hospital. They cleaned him up, his nails for long and things. Um, I'm really cleaned up. And uh, he stayed for a little while. But he left in great condition. In fact, his speech had improved, oddly enough. Um, but he left in fantastic condition. I say fantastic. He, um, he could walk. His arm was a little bit immobilized, but not fully. Um, but he continued to live alone. But I did ask the nurse on my way out. I said, ma'am, I just have to ask you. I said, there were four people in this, in this ICU. Um, where are they? And she goes, funny. Um, all of them 
are doing well. And two of them are going home today. <laughs> the other two have their own rooms now. Um, I was quite surprised by that. But I moved shortly after that. That was my last little bit. And honestly, I think the folks that approached me that day to be the room, the person that roomed underneath Joe's apartment were just as led. You know, it seems as though all these stories come together and bless every one of us. We have a few minutes left, Lisa. I'm wondering if someone hearing the show would like to be able to be a channel for God's love, what, how would you suggest that they go about reaching that goal? Oh, Lee, I'm so glad you asked me that. And I'm going to take every second if I can. Um, my husband and I, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story, and this, this I'll tell another day, but my husband and I um, encountered severe financial challenges. Um, we awoke to find that a bank that had recently underwritten my father's project of 25 years, a New York City bank, a bank we all know, had gone bankrupt in the Great Recession of 2009. And um, we had a, a business that had years of pre-sold inventory and we had many investments, but we awoke to the news that that bank's bankruptcy was going to freeze our ability to earn another dollar until that bank was either out of bankruptcy or replaced by another lending institution. I think they'd only had a loan with my father's company for about five or six months. Um, through the course of that time, my husband and I were carrying many assets and needed to pay many large sums of debt that we could not pay. We quickly went through our income. But a, young, a friend of mine, a woman who was uh, a yoga instructor, a woman who loves God, she, she would come to my home and we would talk more than we would stretch. I just needed something to try to get through this time. And she told me something that I will share. She said, you know what I want you to do? She said, I think you need to build your spiritual muscles. You need to know when God is speaking to you and you need to really rely on these muscles. So here's one thing I'm going to tell you to do that I've learned over the years. She said from her own teachers, she said, when you go to the grocery store, stand in front of the fruit, the apples, and close your eyes and take a deep breath and ask father, which one? And she said, when you open your eyes, reach for the apple you're led to grab and put it in your basket. Don't question it. And she said, and if you don't know, move on, just grab one and move on. We were in such desperation that I began adopting this. And you'll even hear it in the stories I've shared today. I stop and I take a deep breath and go, which way? I've done this at stop signs when I've known I had to go right and was led to go left. And what unfolded was amazing. I've done this at traffic incidents and, you know, in, in, in my husband and I for six years, Lee, every month we owed more than we would make all year. And we managed to pay back every dollar of what was millions in debt for assets that we had been led to invest in without filing for bankruptcy, doing just this. But it falls in line with something that I believe in very strongly. And it, there's a line in the Bible. 
That line is a psalm. It's Psalms 46.10. And it says, be still and know I am. And those words, I am God. Be still and know I am God. Or be still and know I am. And those words are effectively a summary of what I was doing when I would stand in the grocery and just take a deep breath and clear my own mind, my chattering mind. Oh, you know which apple. That one's too yellow. Grab the shinier one. That's small. Look at the bruise. You know, no. Which one? Standing at the incident, the man is behind me. Father, what next? My legs collapse and the words come. That peace, that be still and know I am, I've learned, has everything to do with knowing that in that stillness, God is right here, closer than hands and face, nearer than our breath. And just turning my thought and knowing and radically knowing, radically relying on Father, if you tell me to go left, I'll go left. And I'll wait until you tell me to stop. I'll drive until until you tell me to stop. And and, And the things that have unfolded, I mean, month after month when we paid off those debts, the stories that unfolded, we had exhausted our 401ks and our children's savings and college funds. But the things that occurred were so outside of anything I could have known. And the blessings blessed more than just us. So I would share that. Mm-hmm. Just begin to practice it and and these answers will come quickly. You know, our minds will try to over, override them and just... All right, I will go left, you know. Okay, I'm going left. Wow, that's terrific. We are just about out of time. If folks would like to contact you, we'll be posting this on our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, and there'll be comments. And if you could keep an eye on those, Lisa, and respond to people, that would probably be a good way for them to contact you and and for you to respond to them. I'd love to. I'd love to. Yeah. So my thanks to Lisa for opening all of those Advent calendar doors on stories of the miraculous in everyday life. If listeners would like to hear this show again or any of our more than 400 archived NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the past shows button or subscribe to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting where you can listen and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to like, follow, and share on our our new NDE radio Facebook page and discover our Facebook group and links to our YouTube channel while you're there. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.